Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, October 5th, and I'm your consumer goods host, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Asit Sharma to talk about the eye care specialist Warby Parker. Asit, thank you for joining. Emily, thank you as always for having me. I've been eyeing this company uh, for a few days now, so eager to chat about it. I will say, when you Slack messaged me and said we should do a show over Warby Parker, I, I recognized the name immediately. However, I do have to say, I didn't know what their business was. The name sounded familiar, but until I started digging into their S1, this is a newly public business, until I started digging into their S1, it wasn't. It didn't occur to me. I was like, oh, this is the, the direct to consumer eye care company. You know, I had a similar experience in that I had heard about Warby Parker for years until finally realizing a, a few years ago that this is a company that sells eyeglasses. It's a familiar brand name. It has this ring of having been around for a while. We'll chat a bit about the the name story, but they've got fairly decent brand recognition and that's always good when we talk consumer goods companies that are investable. To me, especially in 2021, I'm paying attention. That that goes for something, having a strong brand and an easily recognizable brand. And I will say that's one thing they did mention in their filing is that their unaided brand awareness was 13%, meaning when they had their third party go out to the markets and they asked people, uh, can you name you know, a, a, a direct-to-consumer eyewear business? 13% of people pulled Warby Parker right out of their minds without any further kind of acknowledgement, right? So I think that's pretty impressive for this business. Maybe I'm wrong there, but as somebody who didn't recognize the name immediately, who wouldn't be able to be part of that 13%, it says to me, well, there's some customer loyalty, but also some room for expansion. Absolutely. I'm guessing that Ray-Ban scored really high on that, but of course, we don't buy sunglasses at the rate, or most of us don't, that we might, uh, especially high-end sunglasses at the rate that we do regular eyewear. Definitely. So, tell us a little bit about this story, I guess. This is a founder-led company and also a company that is run by two co-CEOs. We've talked about this in the past. I always think that's a fun and interesting dynamic. Isn't it, though? Yeah. So, Warby Parker was founded about 10 years ago. And interestingly enough, they were this group of co-founders. There are actually four, I think. They were grad students at the Wharton School of Business, which is a very celebrated uh, business school. I think it usually ranks in the top three or so of business schools in the US. Um, the Two of these co-founders and now co-CEOs, Neil Blumenthal and Dave Gilboa, have a sort of cute founding story that a professor goes around and tells on a pretty regular basis. I think he's probably done this at least, must, must have put this in a TED talk. But famously, when the founders came up with this business while they were at Wharton, they took a lot of time to launch the company. They tested out 2,000 names before they settled on Warby Parker. Warby Parker are two names extracted from the journals of novelist Jack Kerouac, for you literary people out there. In fact, they were so methodical, Emily, that one of their professors, highly regarded Wharton professor Adam Grant, passed on an early invitation to invest in this company. He didn't find it very promising that the founders hadn't dropped out of Wharton to go ahead and launch the company. 
And he calls passing on this investment the worst financial decision of his life. And now his wife handles all of the comp- uh, of the couple's investments. <laughs> so they um, they they grew fairly quickly when they finally did get started. I'll just mention one thing from their S1 statement, their their prospectus, which tells you a little bit about how fast they grew. And, and it also introduces something that you want to talk about as well. I'll, I'll just quote verbatim here. When we launched the business in February of 2010, less than 2.5% of glasses were sold online. Yet we believe that if we offered high quality, uniquely designed glasses for a reasonable price point with mechanisms to try them on, like our home try-on program and outstanding customer service, people would be willing to buy eyewear online for the first time. We reached our first year sales target in three weeks, sold out of our top 15 styles in four weeks, and built a wait list of thousands of customers for our first-of-its-kind home try-on. I just want to point out here that the concept of trying on something at home and maybe sending it back seems second nature for a lot of subscription-type services now, but it was an innovation in 2010. And it's challenging for consumers as well. It's one of those reasons why less than two and a half percent of all eyeglasses sales are made online back in 2010 and still is really low today. And we could talk about that. But it's one of those things where you want to get it right. And a lot of times people don't know exactly what they need, whether that be a style or a specific type of lens until they have the opportunity to actually put it on their their faces. And Warby Parker has taken an interesting model, obviously going direct to consumer, trying to undercut a lot of the more expensive brands out there, letting people do this home try on where they send back any ones that they don't want to keep, but also combining that with the retail approach. They do have I believe it's 145 retail stores um, across the United States where people can walk into, um, try on glasses there, make purchases, and also get uh, in-house eye exams, that sort of thing. So it's a it's a hybrid model, but really focus on online sales and converting in-store purchases to digital. Yeah, and I think that this online model direct-to-consumer has a lot of legs to me, it almost seems like it's early innings, although the company has been around for a long time. We'll return to this question uh, by the time we finish this podcast. Um, so, Home Try-On, you mentioned when we were uh, preparing for the show that, that this has been pretty big for them, right? So, you can order five pairs to try on at home. You send the rejected ones back. That reminds me a little bit of Stitch Fix. Uh, it helped them grow in 2020 by 6% their, their sales, even though they weren't profitable in 2020 during the pandemic. So they had that as a fallback. I have been looking at the results of Luxottica, which is sort of the mammoth player in this space. They dominate the eyewear industry. They were on track to hit $10 billion in sales and uh, just were not able to be as resilient because they're so store-based, retail-based. Um, very nice active customer base, 2 million active customers. Unique customers make at least one purchase or have made at least one purchase in the last 12 months. And they had just over 2 million orders in 2020. So very decent base there. The revenue split is primarily one uh, that favors glasses. They get 95% of revenue from glasses, 2% from contacts, 1% from eye exams, and 2% from accessories. Maybe some room to expand there in the future, but clearly the core of the business is this uh, glasses business. And they cite that the average eyewear consumer replaces their glasses every 2.5 years. Obviously, I wasn't included in that data set. 
Do you replace it more frequently or less frequently? Well, you know what happened? So, the, the, the pair that I had that I kept in my glove compartment for years, after a while, they made their way out of my glove compartments. I've never replaced a pair yet. Maybe I'll go back. I always walk a little wistfully past the eye exam cubicles when I'm in a big box store. They, they have these. You see off to the side of your vision. You can go and walk in and take an eye exam. Maybe I should do that. I'm guessing I would be a four to five year replacement data point for them. But let's let's talk about the financials, Emily. Let's move on to the business. What can you tell us uh, about this company's financial makeup and what you liked about it? Oh, I liked so much about this. I was I was shocked for the data that this business provides. Um, I love good data on things like customer acquisition costs, average order value. I love it even more when you can present that information in graph form with lots of pretty colors, which is exactly what Warby Parker did, which made this S one really enjoyable to read. So if if you're uh, you know big burgeoning investor who's looking for a, a pretty easy S one to sift through, I would say. Warby Parker is a great example. I loved reading through it. Anyway, <laughs> their average order value is just over $180, which is impressive considering their their base level prices start at $95. Um, this is largely because they're able to upgrade people to sell into specialty lenses. But what really stood out to me was two things. I, I mentioned that their average revenue per user, average order value is $180. Their average revenue per user is just over $200, but their customer acquisition, acquisition cost is around $40. So they're immediately profitable on bringing that customer in. Um, and more importantly, they're able to retain uh, sales over the course of a number of years. And that two and a half repeat purchase number is important to remember um, because you can actually track sales retention as they do by the customer cohort. And they have a nearly 100% sales retention per cohort over two years, which says that while not everybody will repurchase, a large number of people come back to the platform after a couple of years and make another eyewear purchase, selling and, and paying a bit more for that experience. Yeah. So, I think it's a little different, but the net effect is the same. I think it might be um, within four years, it's 100%. Yeah, I apologize. I yeah, said yeah, two no, years, meant four years. No problem. You meant four years. But this is extremely interesting because if the average replacement is two and a half years, if, if you think about that in one person's experience, what it means is that most people are going to be replacing glasses within four years. So, for Warby Parker, it also means that there are a number of people in, in a starting cohort that will try another brand within that four years. But by the time four years is up, they buy another pair. <laughs> so, I, I think if I'm, if I'm parsing that correctly. Um, so, I think that this shows why the brand maybe sticky in the future. And I say maybe it has some legs. And Emily, you spent a lot of time looking at average revenue per customer. You spend a lot of time, as we all know, regular listeners to this podcast know that Emily loves to break down customer acquisition costs versus the revenue that's being brought in. I'm impressed by just the, the small increases they were able to make in that average revenue per customer and the fact that it only cost them 40 bucks, I'm going to agree with you there. That's sort of the basis for a good financial equation when we push that out to the income statement. We'll get to that in just a second here. What did you want to tell us about margins as of late? 
Yes. Um, so margins for this business have been interesting. They were compressed during 2020. Um, still pretty impressive. Um, I will say they're not profitable yet, but when you look at their average revenue per customer and how that breaks out for costs, still decent during 2020. Uh, that compression was largely because a, a majority of their sales were actually happening through their retail channels. So in 2020, there was a 60-40 split online compared to retail for sales. That was because their retail stores were shut down. Prior to 2020, it was actually the opposite. It was 40% online, 60% uh, in-store. So the fact that they were able to maintain a still around a 20% margin after all those costs are considered per customer in 2020 was impressive. That was down a bit from the 26% margin they had in 2019. Um, but this has continuously gotten better. Again, heading out of the pandemic, their adjusted EBITDA margin, I believe, is just over 7% over the past six months, which is an all-time high for this business. Right. And as we see, this is a growing company. It's throwing off losses. But over time, I think those losses are decreasing. Um, they haven't yet turned a profit, but I feel like they're getting close. Um, you were pointing out to me, uh, Emily, that they've got a lot of stock-based compensation and marketing costs. So when you take the books on a gap basis, that is according to generally accepted accounting principles, they're still in the red. Um, they generally uh, generate positive operating cash flow. It depends in part on some heavy spending in that holiday quarter in, in the fourth quarter. When I think kids are home, parents are taking kids. You know, I was part wondering of, why there yeah. was a lot. I was like, is that something someone buys for themselves? That, yeah. And I was thinking too, like, it's not the first thing that comes to mind when I think about the holidays and what I might buy. But of course, kids are home from school. They're, they're home from middle school, elementary school, high school, even college. And that's a great time for parents who, in many cases, have eye insurance and need to use it before the year end to, to get that done. So I think that might be driving that as well. I think that uh, the company can be positive on a net income basis. They nearly made it in 2019 before the pandemic. I like that they've got a, a split product model. So they own their own labs. They do their own research and development. They do their own proprietary lens design. They do that all in-house. And then they also own their fulfillment layer. So they own the fulfillment of their products, that whole process. But in between, you, of course, have the manufacturing. That's contracted out to third parties, which they've been working with since they went public. So what you get out of this is a pretty consistent gross profit of 60% due to that nice balance between the high revenue per customer and the smaller acquisition costs on the marketing side. Some of those costs are, are below the line, of course. They don't have to do with gross profit. When you look at the uh, bottom line, their fixed costs are pretty manageable. So that research and development element that isn't allocated above into cost and sales, cost of sales, so the part that's mostly on the bottom, uh, increases at a consistent but manageable rate. And I think the selling and marketing costs they have also are pretty logical. So you've got a company which, if it can keep on its sales cadence, can probably be profitable. I mean, I would take a wager it might be profitable for this year end. That's going out on a limb. But I'll tell you, when if you take the 2019 revenue um, and then extrapolate what they could do this year, if you double the revenue from the first six months, I know this is a poor way to do it, but look, this is, it's a podcast, right? Let's take some thumbnail numbers. Just put throw those two numbers in a compounded annual growth rate calculator. You'll get 
a two-year CAGR of 20%. They're growing at a top, they're growing their top line 20% year over year. So that accounts for that COVID year. It, it normalizes for it. So push that forward a few years. There's no way that they won't become uh, positive on a net income basis unless they start to pour a lot more into research and development or take the decision to start manufacturing some of their own product, in which case you go down to a thumbnail of 50% in an industry like this, and it's going to be a few more years, but they control some manufacturing. So I think that the picture still could look good, even though it, this feels like a story where you want to ask, is okay, are the best days behind? They had this really great brand. They took off like a rocket, but it's 10 years later. The industry is sort of fragmented outside that one big player Luxottica. The more I look at it, the more I think, no, they could they could grow. I mean, they they could do pretty well. This is the area where I think I found myself scratching my head about whether or not the opportunity was just this incredibly massive market, or if we are just never going to see the digitization of eyeglass sales. And I know never say never. And the idea of not moving towards digital in a world where we have eye buying of houses, for instance, seems kind of crazy. So I suppose I lean towards the market opportunity being massive. But some of the numbers that Warby Parker pulled out in their S1 really, really were interesting. one of the things that stood out to me was that uh, more than 50% of total eyeglass sales go to local independent or optical retailers. Um, so it is a very, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Spread apart, uh, fragmented market. Fragmented, yeah, sure. And only 8%, even during the pandemic, right? When everybody was staying home, everybody was ordering online, only 8% of eyewear sales happened online, peak in 2020. I, I'm not sure why. Um, I can speak anecdotally. I know my my boyfriend actually a couple months ago made a an eyewear purchase for the first time in probably five or six years. Uh, replaced his eyeglasses. Ended up buying from a competitor of Warby Parker, Zinni, which we can get to, but had to return them because the prescription was a little bit off. Ultimately, ended up with a pair of glasses that does work though. So I, I'm not sure I buy into the idea that you can never order glasses online. I think it's just going to be a, a a transition where we have to educate or Warby Parker has to educate their core consumer that you can buy glasses online. And that just because you get your, your eye exam done in a certain location doesn't mean you also have to buy the glasses from that location as well. I think for them, there's a maybe a cap ultimately on the kinds of profits they can make because of what you're pointing out. It's not to make a pun here, but this is a high touch industry, right? <laughs> so you have to have the glasses adjusted. Not it's not just the, the eye exam, but it's going back afterward to to have a professional adjust the glasses. And I know in our case, we we've, we've had one experience with Warby Parker, and I will admit to being a bad dad here in that my wife was much more involved. This was with our, our our third child, who's now uh, just recently off to college, but he recently picked up a pair of Warby Parkers and he went to the store, went back to the store when his glasses came in and had them adjusted. So, you know, that's always going to be there. And because you have this, it, it comes down to, I think, which of these companies that employs more of a direct model can offer the kind of customer service that Warby Parker is offering those high net promoter scores that are in the the low 80s, like sky high customer satisfaction. Part of that's because they've got this retail footprint as well. And you can go in there and the the customer service component is 
is amped up. They're trained to, to please and to be patient. My wife thought the experience was really nice. So tell us a little bit, though, about that, Emily. We've mentioned Luxottica on a global scale as a big player, but there are some direct consumer challengers as well, right? So there's Zenny is one. Zinni and iBuyDirect are probably the two largest. They um, were businesses that also solved the opportunity that the co-founders of Warby Parker did, which was glasses don't need to be as expensive as they are. And if we go in, we cut out the middleman, we can provide a direct-to-consumer approach that offers glasses much cheaper. And um, iBuyDirect, out of all those three, probably offers the cheapest average price, but the quality goes down as well. So things like customer service, um, free returns, there's no try-on period. So you you get what you pay for in a sense. I'd probably say Zinni is in the middle, more expensive than I buy direct, but um, better service. I will say Warby Parker is the only one that combines it with a both a, a retail footprint. So you have stores that you can go into to your, to your point and get them adjusted if you need to get them adjusted as so many people need to do with their glasses. But also they, they're the only ones that offer a free try-home program at home where you can... Uh, have glasses delivered to you, try them on, then send back the ones you don't like, which I think as somebody who doesn't wear glasses, I suppose I can't say this, but sounds attractive to me as a consumer. Um, And that $95 price point isn't exorbitantly higher than any of these other competitors. So the competition, while certainly notable, I almost feel like Warby Parker sets itself apart. Um, I did go to my boyfriend and say, well, why did you, why did you use Zinni? Like what, what led you to Zinni over these other options, trying to get a sense of the market and um, got the very unsatisfying answer of, oh, I don't know, probably the first thing that popped up when he Google searched. So maybe there's something to be said about the SEO with Warby Parker. But either way, the competition's there, but the market opportunity seems to be large enough to support more than one winner. So Emily, I have to say here that you are an avowed non-fashionista. And I think you're rubbing off on your boyfriend. But it's part of a a larger point that I want to make here. Warby Parker, you gave the elements, a $95 entry price point, but they're known out in the larger world for being stylish. Warby Parkers are very aesthetically pleasing oh, eyewear. Yeah, so and, and I hate to bring this up, but in the in the same <laughs> sense of of not knowing who Roger Federer was last week. <laughs> I think here's yeah, something that maybe because I have kids, so I I, I shouldn't beat up on you too much for this. Maybe because I have kids I know this this fact. But yeah, they they're uh they're known for uh being uh, stylish and uh Folks, write in. If you're listening to the podcast, if you're on live with us today, let us know in the Q&A what you think of, of, of that. But I think this combination of style and quality, their in-house design, the proprietary design, the nice frames, give them something of an edge that's also helping build their brand. And, and that's an attribute that you have to pay attention to. But we just have a couple minutes left. Emily, what did you find in here that uh, seems like a risk to you besides the competition? Anything worth mentioning? Yeah, I, I mentioned this earlier, but the fact that uh, you know two thirds of all glasses purchases happen at the same location where consumers get eye exams is just to me says Warby Parker has to do a lot to disrupt this entrenched industry. And there's also an added bonus at this point. I, I think it should be the default assumption if I don't say otherwise, but there are issues regarding internal controls with this business, uh, newly public. So hey, if you're looking for a job and you're you're a socks expert. Uh, head to Warby Parker because they're hiring, uh, but they don't have it right now. So that's always going to be a risk for investors. That 
surprised me a little bit. I didn't expect to find um, that they would have internal control issues, given that the founders went to Wharton. They've been around for a long time. They've been funded, funded with lots of venture capital before this. But uh, boy, that just seems to be the theme for this year with smaller companies coming to market, doesn't it, Emily? It does. I, I don't know if smaller companies prior to maybe the last few years had taken the time to hire on expertise before going public to avoid this type of disclosure, or if investors just kind of stopped caring, or if these companies are headed to market faster. I can understand why you wouldn't necessarily employ somebody who is an expert in things like internal controls when you don't have a need to attest to the quality of them. But I, I am also surprised that we're seeing businesses that are a decade uh, plus older, right? Businesses in some cases that are really profitable and um, have been consistently funding their own operations for so long, still not have the needed expertise to really be public businesses when it comes to their accounting standards. But what do I know? I'm nitpicking. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't. Maybe you're not nitpicking. I know we don't have much time here, but but a last point here that I think it shows that many of these companies just didn't expect to take this avenue. Why would you spend time building up robust Sarbanes Oxley compliance if you didn't really have it on your radar screen to go public? Then overnight, you see so much capital going in uh, to the markets. You see direct listings, SPACs you start to consider maybe we should tap into this capital before it all dries up and goes away. So maybe that's some of what we're seeing. Well, either way, I, I think out of all the businesses we've talked about recently, this one does make me really excited. I know we didn't mention it much, but you know, I think we'll get the inevitable question of, well, what about the contacts industry? And is contacts really going to disrupt eyewear? But I think we've seen over the past few decades that there's always going to be a demand for things like eyeglasses, especially when you think about the international market opportunity, um, even amongst people who otherwise wear contacts. So I like the market. I'll keep my eye on it. I'd, I'd to your point, I, I want to see them be profitable this year. That would be really impressive if they're able to do that. But out of all the businesses we've talked about recently, I, I find myself kind of excited for this one. This one certainly caught your eye, Emily. It, <laughs> it almost went over my head. M mine too. <laughs> well, mine too. We're always full of bad puns. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Uh, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asa Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! Fool on!